If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet PlushCare, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, this is Dr. Drew, and you are listening to This Life with Bob Forrest and Dr. Drew. Here we are. Gentlemen, boys and girls, gather around whatever apparatus you listen to podcasts on. Usually it's a phone, usually in your car. And get ready for another episode of This Life with Dr. Drew and Bob and Shelly. Yes, our, our special sp- guest. Special host yes. guest. Oh, hey, guys. Hey, hey. So it's give good it, to be here. Give it, put that microphone closer to your mouth and Sorry. give everyone an update on what you're doing. Um, well, I'm still doing treatment. Too yeah, much. Still, Too still much working, treatment. Still working in treatment. Um, doing Bel Air treatment on the outpatient and then the detox we have a little six bed detox and then we have uh, an lgbtq uh program in west hollywood and so we're on melrose on melrose yeah we're um we're and you know we're we're obviously trying to move forward in in growing you know do you have any uh, hiv and aids specialization or tracks or anybody you we we refer to the big LGBTQ um, AIDS, sort of AIDS, AIDS project, project. Yeah. and and everyone who works in the Pride program is all very well informed yeah, around how to resource these guys, and they're getting resourced in in every area that they need to. Now, since we were all a team, the transgender thing has become much more common. Are you um, dealing with yes. that? Yeah, how how is that working? Yeah, you? we're dealing we're dealing okay with that. You know, my little six bed detox. I, I don't have the room and the space, so we're referring to places that have like a singular room for the individual, so mm-hmm. that they can feel comfortable. Um, I only they have, however, they're identifying. Yeah. We want to put them in in a place where they feel comfortable, yeah. and also where they feel safe. And yeah. then everyone, you know, is working towards treating them appropriately. Around, you know, I'm just doing detox, so I'm just trying to stabilize. You know, I'm not trying to dig into any, you know, real mental health at that point. I'm just trying to stabilize yeah. and get them Which one know, the, glued the, together, again, so to speak. Worth a reminder, one of the grave misconceptions that people have is how soon into the process of addiction treatment you can get involved in the mental health stuff. I mean, you can treat the symptomatology, for sure. Yes. But you can't really dig in until you've been stable for Their a while. Their own Bible no. says you shouldn't do it for a year, Dr. Drew. The, whose Bible? The psychiatric Bible. Yeah, I know. I, I like. I prefer six months, but I'll settle for three sometimes. Yeah. So. But yeah. Well, some of these guys come in, um, and they've had multiple experiences with multiple clinicians, yeah. and they already know about some of their trauma stuff. They already know about some of their diagnoses. They already yeah. know about some medications. So you're rarely getting somebody who doesn't already have an idea of what they're dealing with. Yeah. And they and sometimes times, identify with their diagnosis. Well, that's They'll a problem, tell right? you that's a problem. that they are that. And yes. I'll say, well, let's figure it out. I don't know what you are. <laughs> you haven't been sober long enough to know. <laughs> exactly. And so I ask them, you know, hey, let's just do this. Let's just get from point A to point B. Let's just stabilize. Um, and we'll see how that, 
you know, works out. Yeah. But we're just going to really talk about like how you're going to navigate your your withdrawal symptoms right now. All right. I, th- I sent you one. I hope he shows up. I uh, hope he, he does too. He, he's he's not getting what's going on. But can we can we go back in time 20 years to when I started doing this, Shelly started doing it, you were already doing it. Yeah. Psychiatry and chemical dependency were two separate universes. Oh, oh Bob. Bob, the they reason, were two separate hold on, universes. Hold on. No, 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 no. You don't know the history because the reason I got my job because there was in the 80s, they were separate universes. And psychiatry got very upset about this because they started saying that the addiction specialists, the addiction team, which were often very big in those days, were usurping their patients. They got very defensive. And at Las Encinas, the guy who I learned from got pushed out. And they put a psychiatrist, Chris Rutland, in that job. Do you know this? No. Oh. Well, so Chris Rutland gets the – he's an excellent psychiatrist. We uh-huh. all work with him. Many years. We yeah, love Chris. Yeah, yeah. Right. He, and he calls me one day and he goes, you know, you're spending all this time down in the unit. I was getting very good at detoxing. I really was not super good on addiction yet. I didn't fully get it. I still thought that that thing on the wall that said 12 steps is sort of silly. And uh-huh. I was very, very naive. And, but I was very good at the biology and the early withdrawal and stuff. And he goes, hey, man, you're down there all the time. How about you be my co-director? you be my assistant director. And it's nothing. I'll take vacations in Christmas time. You just cover me then during those two weeks. You're there anyway. It's no big deal. You got it. I go, oh, thanks. Fast forward six months, he quits. And I moved into the directorship because of that Mm -hmm. and had to really get my act together very, very, very quickly. And we, it was a few rocky years of building teams and stuff. And but then traditionally, I found you guys. traditionally, I worked at MAP. There was and, and, no well, psychiatry but, but let me at just MAP. Say, Bob, Nobody cared the about reason I was labeling ideal, people. But listen, the reason I was ideal, I'm an internist. I'm not a psychiatrist. So I was of no threat to psychiatry and no threat to anybody. I didn't want their patients. I just wanted them to bring their patients and feel free to join me in the treatment that we that we. But are. the two different worlds right. I'm talking about is – I was, you know, I've been working with CryHelp recently. I just love it. It's like yeah. my, like how you feel about SC, that's how I feel about CryHelp. Yeah. Am- so, Amherst, Amherst, not SC. <laughs> it's true. Amherst, not SC. That's so, so great. So, so, so CryHelp was a separate universe. Nobody cared about diagnosing patients yeah, yeah. bipolar. MAP was a separate universe. The psychiatry did not. Enter in factor into dealing with drug addicts, well, but but that was a little bit of a. Weakness. But now it's all different. All you right. go to music cares, everybody's dual diagnosis. Yeah. You go all to right. cry help, everybody's dual perfect, diagnosis. Perfect, perfect. And here's my point: we know how to get people sober. Yeah, I don't know what they are. I don't know if they're transgender or this or yeah. that or, or, or bipolar yeah. or whatever. Yeah. I know how to help somebody yeah. achieve sobriety. That's right. That's my job. Now they've complicated our job so much with pharmacology and diagnoses and whatever and it's fun to get a hold of but i've just gone back to sober is sober is sober good good. because the courts only care about sober is sober i'm going back to the courts oh that's interesting the the courts don't care if you're bipolar no they want you to stop taking meth yeah just yeah please and yeah god the overusing of psychostimulants now is unbelievable it's unbelievable it's unbelievable it's uh, and i don't know who to send people to anymore when they want to get off me. I, you know, yeah. well, but they're not, not drug addicts, it. even. But a lot of times um, they need to be in locked units. No, I'm saying these aren't even drug addicts. These are just yeah, they, excessive they just want to get prescribing, off. and they're like, "Why am I on this shit? I'm irritable." Oh no, I thought you were inflated. talking about the meth. The meth. Oh, the meth I yeah. mean, it's oh. it's to an astral projection that they can't 
they're not safe in a, chem- a chemical dependency detox unit. The meth addicts? Yeah. Why? Some of them they're are psychotic. just psychotic for a yeah. month. I know. For yeah. a month. Yeah. Not only for a month, dude. They they after they stop the drug, it could be up to three months, and the focus on their primary relationships main, is continued, and they fuck those relationships up, and the the object of the paranoia doesn't understand what's going on. It's always workers, coworkers, neighbors, family, parents, and parents, and, and they and just disrupt I, those relationships as well. And it goes on for much longer, much longer. There's a, there's a lot yeah. of residual. Oh, yeah. No, I'm talking years. Oh, well, they have it's, memory it's, and mood problems. Forever. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I always tell them. Any type I, of conspiracy I was, oh, yeah, around it. them. Oh, forget they'll it. They'll pop right into that. But I always tell them you will, you will for a long time, walk down the street and still look over your shoulder. Absolutely. They, they just keep looking. They, eh, and it's they, that they feeling. They definitely have that for five years. They mm-hmm. can have it for quite some time. And some people are having, you know, actual diagnoses around some yeah, kind and, of and, level and, of psychotic and so, disorder. Right. And so you have to ask yourself, that what the psychiatrist asks him or herself is, is this bipolar disorder that is made worse by the drug? Is this somebody who has a psychotic disorder caused by the drug? Is this some post-amphetamine-related residual? At that point, doesn't matter. I'll go you, you, can't one, I'll go you one for, further. The society is so unsafe and scary. Oh, yeah. You add meth... Yeah. Beginnings of schizophrenia, yeah. the society, you know, it's okay. it's an overwhelming combination of problems. But you can get people sober. That's what I've gone back to the last two months. You can get people sober. Yeah. I don't even want to talk about the other things. I say, you got a psychiatrist, yeah. talk to them. Yeah. Right? Uh-huh. You could be sober. Well, that's and, why I kind of always dealt with it. And like you'd be surprised when you deal with 20, 22, 24-year-olds. They don't even know that benzos are addictive. I know. Like, no, you can't take benzos. That's, that yeah. means you're high. Yeah. No, you can't take Adderall. That means you're high. I know. You just lay down what sobriety is. And yeah. they're longing for attachment and love and connection and community. Yeah. And they'll embrace it. But when, you, when I try to go down that road with psychiatry and all that, it's just... No, no, I know. It's just a never-ending world. Right. It's like a Alice in Wonderland. Well, I can go some places. You're with better them. at it. You I can know go that. Some stuff. places with them. I with can go with psychiatry. I can go as far as they want to go if they want to treat symptoms. Yeah. But I'm not going to work on diagnoses right. if someone is just sober or hasn't been diagnosed right. with long-term sobriety. Correct. And sometimes you. I get them, and they have had long-term sobriety, and they have struggled with depression, and they have struggled with maybe anxiety. And they've been able to maybe to have an SSRI, and that's worked sure, for them. Of course. But what trauma survivor doesn't have anxiety? Exactly. And what he, American doesn't? Yeah, I know these days. When you have so it. Much anxiety. Oh, I'm a full. You've got it. I have. I have. Yeah. I'm too much of a narcissist have to have it. Three <laughs> sociopaths. <laughs> so, so I think I have PTSD, generalized anxiety, and panic. Uh huh. I have yeah. all three, and yeah. I formally I have generalized anxiety disorder. Formally. And yeah. this is yeah. what Formally is yeah. important for moms, because I know a lot of moms listen to this show because I hear about it. So moms who have these kids that are 22, non-functioning, diagnosed since they were 16 with all these ADHD and this and that and bipolar disorder and all this kind of stuff, they're so confused because their kids are taking fentanyl and meth. Yeah. And they're going to die of it. Yeah. I guarantee you they're going to die oh, yeah. of it. They're not going to die of ADHD. But there's no axes anymore. Yeah. Psychiatry has changed the paradigm well, well, of how you prioritize. DSM-5 yeah. is right? different. Yeah, yeah completely it's, different. Yeah. And, and, and You still like thinking in terms of axes. So do I. 
I don't. They don't know. use it yeah, anymore. You, no. I don't know. The DSM five. No. It's about. It's like narrowing down specific, very tightly controlled diagnoses and sort of frequencies and courses. All like frequencies, re- courses. Well, when they're severity. using fentanyl yeah. and meth every day, how frequently is an occurrence of that? Right. Well, I mean, now we're having to diagnose um, each substance. Right, individually. individually. And you can't say polysubstitution anymore. No. All right, hold on a second. We'll take a little break. When we come back, we will talk to Celine Gounder. I want to welcome True Niagen to the show. True Niagen is a dietary supplement designed to boost key cellular resource called NAD. It's also, that's short for nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. It's a coenzyme found in every living cell. It's essential to our cells, and it's a key mediator of metabolism. A lot of work being done at NAD these days. I've been watching it very carefully. The science is preliminary, but it's been looking good in a lot of areas. Uh, What's exciting about these studies is that the increased NAD levels may potentially help with cellular metabolism, regulating circadian rhythm, and they're even hopeful it may slow the effects of aging. Very interesting research and seemingly no adverse effects. So while studies are very early, science out there is impressive. The biohacking community has gotten behind the research. Actually, the addiction treatment community has gotten behind it, too. I've been intrigued with the possibilities surrounding NAD and the research behind True Niagen. I suggest you check it out for yourself. Go to their website. In June, I had a chance to speak with the company's chief scientific advisor, Dr. Charles Brenner, on the Dr. Drew podcast. It was a deep science, and it piqued my interest. In fact, I got on the product after talking to him. Definitely check out that episode. And to learn more about the research, the science, and the True Niagen supplements, visit trueniagen.com. That is T-R-U-N-I-A-G-E-N.com. Check it out today. And we are back. We are talking to infectious disease expert Celine Gounder. Celine Gounder, th- welcome to the program. <laughs> Here we are. There she is. So Bob wants to talk to you. My about, pleasure. Yeah, wants to talk to you about this New Yorker article you wrote, which uh, we all admired. And uh, go ahead, Bobby. Well, you took a track that Drew takes, which is blame the doctors, right? Should we fill people in at home? Well, to an extent. So. A, does anybody believe the doctors, you've mentioned it, were brainwashed by the marketing campaign of Purdue that, the, the that, Purdue, that you could take as much per, opi- Purdue opioids was duplicitous. as you want? They were duplicitous. And but I don't believe the doctors believed it, and that makes them evil. Uh, no, there, there there was a religious fervor around the treatment of pain. There still is, and, by the way. I know. And there you and I is. lived through this. And Shelly, you were with us too during this. When we were hand over fist taking chronic pain patient off You opiates. just want to talk about that doctor we had escorted off the grounds. I know. Came to visit I, I know. his pain management client. Laid down at his feet. <laughs> And, and so we had. That was we in had, your unit too. We had horrible. Drew lost his mind, walked out, and said, "Get him off the property." I was like, "I don't think I have the right to make a doctor leave the property." In any event, we were dealing with this all the time, and patients would come in saying, "I'm having 15, 18 on a scale of 10 pain." We would take them off opiates, put them on an anti-inflammatory, some Toradol, yes. and within two weeks, what was the number? First of all, they would not they were, mention their pain unless we prompted they it. They were unless fine, we asked, but there yes. was an emotional attachment to those doctors. Oh, sure, because they got the drugs from them. Exactly. Of course there was. <laughs> in, in a Pavlovian but, way. But, Celine, let's hear you talk about you, your article. Yeah, so, I mean, I think I went through some of what you guys went through uh, in the course of my own training. You know, we were taught, oh, if you give OxyContin um, around the clock, they're not going to have withdrawal. They're not going to get addicted because you're not going to have the highs and the lows. And so it's perfectly safe. And this is something I was taught as a resident, you know, not so long ago. And so, you know, I think that doctors really did think they were doing the right thing by their patients, at least, you know, up to a point. Um, And I think, you know, unfortunately, where we are now is, is, 
you know, another phase of the epidemic. So regardless of who you blame, though, for, you know, starting it, and certainly doctors were a participant in that uh, part of the problem, you know, now we're at a point where we're dealing with heroin and fentanyl, which are not prescribed by doctors. And, and listen, you've got to understand, we, I was vilified. Because they were literally, there was a discipline in medicine. You train your residents, give more opiates. If you don't, pain is the fifth vital sign. It's as important as your pulse. And you, meaning our team, I, you don't understand the heat I came under for taking people off opiates. Uh-huh. I was considered mm-hmm. cruel uh-huh. and unnecessary barbaric. and barbaric yeah. and old-fashioned. Mm-hmm. And, and, yeah. and we would take people off, and then our peers would literally kill them because they would add in the benzodiazepine, and that would be that. And Jeff put them Conway. back on. Jeff, Jeff Conway, Conway being the poster child. But I want to show you. I got this from UCLA. I sent yeah. a client to UCLA, and I got this back and it says safe pain medicine prescribing in emergency departments and it goes through a list of things now that they're giving the clients yeah, before that are before yeah. that they're stating we are not going to prescribe pain meds we want one provider we want one pharmacy mm-hmm. and so now i mean at least i'm getting patients coming back from ucla with oh, yeah. some idea oh, no, it's around not prescribing pain no, meds. I, I would argue we're going to go actually overboard i, I and, would and, imagine yeah, we would go yeah. overboard but I'm happy to see this. And there, well, they, you should know there's this Cures program in California yes, that we and, have to sign up for, we're too. We're going to actually be online with the Cures program Good. because we have so many clients coming in saying they're on this, they're on this, they're on this. They've been on this for 10 years, this on five years. And we can't really get a read exactly yeah. who's on what and for how long to know what their withdrawal symptoms and to what to yeah. expect in a detox situation. And Celine, the Celine Gounder is an infectious disease doctor. She's dealing a lot with HIV and AIDS. Uh, what, what, you know, I'm sure you're seeing lots of, as you said, fentanyl and heroin. What, what do you, these are complex patients. What are you doing with them? So we're, we're seeing a big spike in fentanyl overdoses in New York City as we are across the country. And so, you know, the first thing you got to do is just stabilize them. Um, so a lot of that is obviously just getting them a safe place to stay, a safe place to, you know, live after they're discharged. And just that has been a huge barrier. You know, when you, when you revive somebody, you know, what next? Well, they need to be stable enough to go into drug treatment. Um, and a lot of times we don't have the beds. So you then send them, you know, out and there's no obvious place to go. Unfortunately, a lot of them are homeless um, or marginally housed. And, and so it's really difficult with those patients to help. It's very different from, you know, your celebrity patient who has all the resources at their disposal. When somebody is, uh, you know, that much on skid row, it's, it's really difficult. Yeah, yeah, well, the problem is on our side, it's they sprinkle in meth and now they're psychotic and on opiates and they don't want to come in for treatment. They want to stay on the street and yeah. we have no ability to mandate they're helping them. And the, so they, they spiral down because we have no ability. They, they may be expanding gravely disabled in California. I hope they do. Yeah, so, I really hope yes, they do. I, do I think too. that's going to be one of the bigger things is I had a gravely disabled person, you know, yesterday and, you know, I have no recourse None. and I sent them to UCLA yeah. and they sent them back to me. Yeah. And yeah. this person is, that happens you know, all the time. psychotic. So we may feel better mandating they go somewhere. There's no place for them to go. Well, they were full. You They're see always full. full. Yeah. They're always full. Well, no. The week before I sent someone and they kept him for four days. So, I mean, they're not always full. Did that person have good insurance? It, it, they both equally had PPOs. The, the, both, both clients had relatively well, no, the same. Well, no, but she's talking about 
you know, you know, Medicaid yeah, they had people, period. it's impossible. I deal with a lot right. of Medicaid people. There is no places for them to That's go. That's true. You just said cryhelps taking Medi-Cal. For detox. Uh. Just detox. And you've, I'm not talking about psychotic treatment. people treatment. or people no, resistant to, to treatment. They have to be willing yeah. and, and ready to go. Which yeah. is almost nobody. <laughs> at, the, at the beginning. Well, <laughs> definitely almost nobody. And in addition to that, sobriety isn't sober anymore. Yeah. I don't I know, know if you've noticed this or not. Yeah. But yeah, being it, sober and means so not that to discourage you're not doing him, but your I, drug of choice. I spoke at the oldest AA meeting in Los Angeles last night. I remember going there in the 80s, and there were 250, 350 people crammed in this room. There was less than 40 there last oh, night. Boy. So why is it not attractive? In a time when it's so desperately needed, well, narcissism. It, it's a. narcissism, and it's there's a, been a campaign against it. Uh, and there is the psychiatry will give them gratifying meds like Suboxone. Because you don't have to be sober anymore to be sober. Yeah. And <laughs> that's true. It's true. And I'm fighting cannabis on a daily basis as a harm reduction. Oh Everyone's choosing harm reduction at this point, which we didn't really have so much of when we were younger. It was either you were using drugs or you were sober, and it was pretty clear. There was methadone. That was a little you know, in NA or whatever, you know, but we, we knew when we were smoking cannabis that we weren't sober. We knew when we were drinking booze, we weren't sober and like sober meant something. And now it doesn't really mean okay. as much. And You're so, going to make uh, Drew cry. I Come know. on. Well, let me, let me, I'm let me, sorry. This is what I'm faced with every single day. I, I so let's I get mean, Dr. It's Gounder's insa- input. It's insanity. Let's say Dr. Gounder a chance to make comment. Well, I mean, what's wrong with that on some level? If you're keeping people alive, I mean, isn't that ultimately the goal here? You know, why does it matter if somebody needs to, to take methadone or buprenorphine or really anything to stay alive? You know, what's, what's our goal as physicians, at least, is, is to keep people alive. And I think part of the reason a lot of people are not ready to go into treatment is because addiction is fundamentally, at least in my opinion, it's a disease of bad options. You know, there's a reason people are turning to drugs in the first place, becoming dependent. They're trying to medicate something that is very much wrong. And some of that has to do with, you know, some of the things that have happened to them in life and and not seeing a way of that situation. So I think part of our job is to create trust, to help people stay alive, feel better and, some of the things we might be focusing on might be getting them a place to stay, dealing with other things other than the addiction so, so that they understand that we're there to help them to be ready to, to really quit. See, right. That's our problem is we know what it takes to really quit. And we, we are not interested in just a lie. We are interested in returning to a fully thriving existence. Well, I don't think – And, that, we, and we, we want people to stay alive, but we want them to continue on the process I don't think, of I'm going to say something really controversial. I've dealt with probably 30,000 addicts in the last 10 years. Yeah. A lot of them don't want to be alive. Yeah. There is no hope out there yeah, in this true. country. There is too much divisiveness, hopelessness, helplessness, learned helplessness. Well, so what? Right? You're not going to address we that? We need to tell these young people, what are you talking about? There's all kinds of opportunity in life. There's amazing well, things can, going can, can on. They, can they respond to that when they're strung out on replacement But therapies? here's the thing, and we've talked about this. They attach to me. I'm mm-hmm. like the weird uncle yeah. or the therapeutic bond, whatever you yeah. want to call it. Mm-hmm. I get them inspired, and sadly or positively, most of them end up working in treatment, mm. and I have like two, three hundred people that I know that 
were of that ilk. They didn't care whether they were alive. It didn't matter. This is everything sucks type mentality that was different than our generation's everything sucks. This is a hopelessness I've never seen before in young people. Mm. And you have to, you they've been brainwashed to believe that nothing is possible. And you have to re-educate them, re-parent them into this hopeful state. Yeah. It takes a lot of fucking work. I know. It takes hour by can, hour can you do for it? years. Can you do it when they're still on replacement? Sometimes, but they those tend to just drift away. The, right. the harm reduction. This I have no. I, I have. I'm. I'm trying not to be arrogant about. It. I have. I have no faith that harm reduction is going to help in any way long term. Right. Five years from now, they're just going to be on fentanyl, and right. we'll deal with them then. Right. This is a this is a kicking a can down the road. It's yes. not a long term solution. Correct, because we know addicts. We know what they do. We know how this works. And the, what's frightening is the fentanyl. So the New Yorker also New Yorker is one of my favorite you know outlets for news. The New Yorker also did an article about fentanyl, and it I read it about a month ago. I've talked about it every day since then. Thirty eight hundred dollars for a kilogram of pure fentanyl from China when diluted correctly and put into pill form on the streets of the United States is worth $30 million. Think about that. Think about the profit. $4,000 investment, $30 million profit. Crazy. Mm -hmm. Heroin is $50,000 investment, $200,000 profit. Right. Heroin will fade away into the distance only to be replaced by fentanyl or they're what they're doing now, which I believe is why people are dying so much. They're, the the things that people are buying that they think is heroin is fentanyl. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. right. To re, looks and resembles heroin, but it's not. Right. It's fentanyl. Well, I'm seeing a and lot you're of two doctors up. here. Why don't you talk about the, the, the why did they create a drug so powerful? Well, fentanyl was created really for severe, severe pain. I mean, the place, the the situation in which I use it for patients is uh, patients who have cancer, who have end of end of life, Mm -hmm. you know, very severe metastatic cancer. Why is it? We also use it anesthesia if you're undergoing. Yeah. Why is it produced in such potency? One kilogram has enough potency to dilute just, down to $30 million you're, you're, worth of you're street just, value. You're comparing apples and oranges. It's a highly potent chemical. Therefore, low quantities will be potent. That's it. When, when, so so when a pharmaceutical company is, is developing a drug like that, is there a brain trust that goes, oh, my God. Is this really good for mankind? No, they go, oh, my God, we're going to help these people with cancer who suffer so much. And we're going to find a way to deliver it sublingually and, and, and through their skin so they don't have to be awake and we can limit their suffering. Mm-hmm. And so, believe me, I've used crap loads of it in cancer. So right. the, the doctor, I want to ask the doctor, do you think moving forward after this tsunami of death that Purdue has cast upon our land that pharmaceutical companies will consider – the diverted potential for drugs they are developing? They, they do consider that. That's why they add naltrexone in and all this stuff, but they don't really understand addiction. And so they don't fully appreciate it's how It's the leading cause work. of death in America. They don't, they don't they understand still, it. Doctors don't understand that it's the leading cause bet, of death in I'm America. I'm going to bet, though Dr. Gounder deals with drug addicts all the time, she's never worked in an abstinence recovery-based program, and she's never seen that happen. Mm-hmm. Am I right, Dr. Gounder? I've never seen that work. See? This is somebody who works with addiction every day, and she's never seen what we work in all the time and did for for 30 years. 
So they're never exposed to it. They just mm-hmm. never see it. Right. They don't know what you do, Shelley. They don't know what you do, Bob. They know how to save lives, which is great. Right. But they don't fully see the, the people on the other side that we deal with all the time. In, that, New, York C- in New York City, Mount Sinai has been doing it for 70 years. There's a, it's, the treatment's out there, but it's not the standard of care. It's not the standard of care. We're, Bellevue's been yes. doing it. Bellevue has Dr. an alcohol Gounder, ward that Jody Wexler worked for, at for, alcohol, for 10 years. For alcohol. Dr. Gounder works in AIDS and drug addiction at Bellevue. Mm-hmm. There's not an addiction unit within the Bellevue for, system? That will be all replacement therapy. Okay. Well, see how that works. <laughs> 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 but Bellevue had to have had that. I know the I know the LCSW. I can tell you were alive. The what? She's keeping them alive. So when they moved to that that unit that's known as the alcohol ward, ward where a friend of mine worked as the LCSW for ten years, that's an abstinence based chemical alcohol, alcohol treatment alcohol, ward. Just alcohol, alcohol, just not, alcohol, not opioids. Not opiates. It's considered a different. It has a totally different landscape. So they just go to voucher housing and Suboxone and get a job? Oh. Well, that's the challenge, right? Who's going to hire somebody who has a jail or prison record for drug use? I mean, well, it's really hard to, to turn to, your I've, life around. I've tried to no talk one to Subway. Give you a job. Subway is a company that's con- that's considering it. Oh, well, a lot of my clients end up in the um, working and recovery. Yeah, um, that's because the only place. we don't do a lot of background checks, and most of us um, who sort of were grandfathered <laughs> in, we you know we had a past, and that what? you know people become <laughs> you know different around you know sobriety or recovery. But I do understand that there is a difference in the way that people are becoming addicted right, so, and there is a so, way that people are becoming sober there and is it a, is different. There is a so, funny so, story though that you protected me. So when you said come work at Lost and Scenes, I was like, oh, this is a hospital. And then they did the whole HR thing with that really nice lady that worked for Lillian and I did a nice interview and whatever and then I filled out all the stuff and when I was filling out the convicted felony, I've never been convicted of right. a felony. <laughs> so so I that. said, I said, you know, I have been arrested a few times. Yeah. Is that going to, I just want to tell you up front because, yeah. you know, I'm five years sober and she said, oh no, Dr. Drew has had other people here. We yeah. understand that. <laughs> right, right. Right? So then two days later they call me back and they go, I sit in this lady's office and she has a paper report. She goes, Robert, you've been arrested 19 times. <laughs> that was more and than I was like, you. But I've never Robert. been convicted of a felony. <laughs> but you're like, but I'm Bob. But, but So here's the deal. Here's what I want to say is that there's about to be a Cochrane uh, a Cochrane meta study, meta analysis. Okay. Uh, it's going to be published through Harvard. A guy named John Kelly and a guy named Keith Humphreys are going to put out a study that shows that mutual aid societies are as effective as any other treatment available today. Now, that's still not hold saying on. much. Hold on, because it's you're, success. You're, you're right. Is really low. Except there's a there's an ancillary study that I believe Keith Humphreys has, if I remember right, where he talks about what's called the warm handoff. He did a study where he went into emergency rooms around the country, not around the country, in the VA system, and said, "Hey, we, we're going to give you two options: you either give these patients some education and a pamphlet about twelve step, mm-hmm. or bring in somebody from a twelve step group, shake their hand, and tell them I'll meet you tonight at a meeting." Mm-hmm. So they did this study. 
And uh, amongst the people that ha- had the pamphlet and the education about 12-step, what do you think the attendance rate was? None. Zero. The attendance rate amongst those who got the warm handoff, yes. what, do you, what do you think that attendance 30%. Rate? 100%. 100%. 100%. 100% wow. attendance okay. at 12-step. That day? Uh, whatever it, whatever it they was... arranged with the handoff. Whatever they arranged with okay. the guy, the gal that came in. The okay. guy had to go get them. So, that's yeah. not true okay, because but, I but do I, that. What, <laughs> you have to go get that right. addict that next yeah. day. All right. Whatever. And the what I wanted you to talk to Dr. Gounder about, though, is what would have happened to you guys had you been put on replacement therapy and not put through more rigorous abstinence-based treatment? Well, really, it was the people of what that era. I, I would not have gotten sober, but the people of that era wouldn't have tolerated that. And I, no, I find that. that the people I of this era— Let's say you're getting sober today. Let's say you're I getting sober I today. I think I probably would have died yeah. um, because, for me— being replacement therapy is not what I'm looking for because the emptiness is catastrophic when you're an opiate addict and you're put on replacement therapy. I get that we're staying alive like heartbeat vitals. Yes, we're staying alive. But the emptiness, that experience, that experience of the emptiness that I can't fulfill unless I go to Bob's house and we sit around and play guitar and, and commune, like I can't get that. From a replacement substance. And, All the things that sobriety a, are. And you're forgetting, I was on buprenorphine in 1986. Oh, that's right. And, you started and using, I tried using, So was she. She, she was uh, on methadone. Yeah, I, I, I was on buprenorphine. You were buprenorphine addict for a while. Yeah, for years and years. Pete, yeah. me, yeah, yeah, everybody, everybody we knew it. was. Because mm-hmm. yeah. Dr. Mark, right. who believed in it, uh-huh. he was an evangelical harm reduction guy yeah. long before it became legal. Yeah. Remember that yeah. guy? Yeah, I do remember him. And, and he thought, yeah, he But he was a trailblazer, and he sat down. This is the great thing about him. He sat down for like 45 minutes with you and and learned about you and and knew you and and talked with you and explained to you. And I remember him saying this. I don't think you're going to get sober anytime soon, but that's the goal. But in the meantime, this can help you. And did you did it help you or did you start? Yeah, it helped. It? it helped. Uh, it made you think about what you're doing. I remember thinking it's so fucking mechanical. Uh-huh. He's treat. See, I'm thinking I'm Keith Richards, yeah. and he's just saying you're just a drug addict. And here's well, some drugs so you don't die. <laughs> right, right. So let's 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 expand this more. I'm going to ask Dr. Gounder. What about things like safe, safe injection sites? I'm for that. And what about giving heroin addicts heroin? Well, let's talk What's about let's talk about her real well, area her of expertise. Let's, HIV and AIDS. Yeah. It was ACT UP who went and did the handoffs. They are the best example of going to bedsides and and inspiring people who felt like they had I was there my bass player had it in 1984 so they made you feel a part of what Shelley's mm-hmm. talking about that me and her and all our friends that got sober it was a part of something it was amazing here in Los Angeles what happened in the HIV and AIDS community also because people, of that. The ACT UP I, I men was going to people's bedsides and saying, "I have it too, and I'm not dying. Please well, come with us." Listen, I, I I dealt with HIV and AIDS a lot in the '80s. I was dealing with it. That's mm-hmm. my was the main preoccupation of my time. And, but uh, that community it was that the built saddest, up, saddest people forget how horrible it was. Horrible, it was horrible. Yeah. But let's let's talk about safe injection sites. Give Dr. Gounder a chance here. Well, a couple of things I would I would just say about uh, what we've been talking about is that, yes, you guys have survived this, but where are all the people who've died over the last 20 years because they only had access to abstinence treatment? They're not here to say, you know what, that, that didn't work for me. 
Um, you know, I think the reason ACT UP uh, is so has been so effective is also they were reaching out, they were from the community, advocating for their community, um, you know, helping people just like them. Uh, and I do think that's one of the reasons people who are in recovery are also very effective working in the field. Um, one, it's a way of turning their experiences into something positive. It gives them meaning from, you know, from, from that painful experience. And, and they just know what it's like uh, and, and can translate that into, you know, just plain talk that people just like them get. Uh, you know, I think the beauty of safe injection sites is it's actually really good for both the public as well as people who have problems with addiction, you know, they're really geared for people who are homeless, who have no place to stay, who would otherwise be using in parks and public bathrooms, you know, at the McDonald's. And so for the general public, it means that they're going to be in a place that's safe. You're not going to have these discarded needles in, in the park. But for the people who are using drugs, it means that they have access to clean needles, other works that are, you know, um, that they might need for their for injection. Um, and it means they have people there in the facility if they overdose to help them. And even more importantly, who can get them plugged in for other sort for other why resources. Not, not, so that could be, you know, getting tested for is, HIV. That could be heroin. mental health. Why not treatment. let them have heroin? Why, why do we? Judge. Well, I think that's well, coming. Safe, I think that's coming. Well, but eventually. let's ask why, why I think not? The I think safe be, injection sites are letting them bring their no, own their own hair. In. But why not? If we're going to give them replacement therapy, why not heroin be one of the potential replacements? Well, I while think it's we too hard to regulate while we enroll get, them and right. try to get England them motivated. does it. Yeah. But but yeah. let me say that that a lot of this movement of safe injection sites is for where the opioid crisis is worst: Ohio, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, mm-hmm. Tennessee, Kentucky. There's always been that in Los Angeles. Safe injections. Always. There's always been a needle exchange. Always, There's yeah. always been people, usually from the sober community, reaching out to that community, making sure to educate them about spreading of infectious disease. I was told it in the, in the 1980s. There's always been in the real metropolitan areas, but an, an education and outreach program to the, the addicted community. Safe injection sites like in Vancouver and in, in Victoria and Canada, I've been to both of them and that, that doctor up in Canada that, that sounds like Deepak Chopra. Gabor but that's Mate. Not, yes, yes. So he is, is – it's a different mentality that – that yeah. love and that outreach that's sure. going on through those safe yeah, yeah. injection sites. I think what we're talking about here is just – to stop the spread of the needles damaging yeah, the yeah, local yeah. community in in Huntington, West Virginia, mm-hmm. or Lakeside, Ohio, because they've never seen anything like it before. Right. Let, let me give Dr. Gounder a chance. Her website, again, is Celine Gounder, G-O-U-N-D-E-R, CelineGounder.com. The podcast is In Sickness and in Health. And I'll give Dr. Gounder a chance to talk about what, what kinds of stuff are you discussing on that on the podcast, and then I want to talk a little bit about uh, your your concern. I'm concerned about the breakdown in sanitation and the homelessness in California. It's it's getting out. Yeah, what is the disease, Chris? You got what is it? Norovirus. When you wipe poop, you wipe poop on your mouth, Shelley. You know about this? I've no. had it twice. Oh my god, yeah, yeah. I can't you know, it's, deal Bob, with this. Bob, it's it's, air, it's airborne now. Yeah, it's, it's volatilized. Mm-hmm. There's so much of it in the homeless oh encampments that it's all twice. over the place. But uh, Dutch Gounder. 
Yeah, so um, I've actually had Gabor Mate on the show. Uh, I've had uh, Mark Tyndall, who's one of the doctors who uh, spearheaded the Vancouver um, Safe Injection Site program. And I've spoken to folks in um, Switzerland who, um, like the Vancouver folks, have looked at uh, heroin-assisted treatments. And yes, it is it is more cumbersome uh, legally, logistically to do heroin-assisted treatment. But you know what? It actually worked. I'm sure. What yeah. they found in Geneva and then later in uh, Vancouver was that they were able to stabilize people at a, at a certain dose and that slowly over time we're able to taper them down, maybe not get them totally off, but at least, you know, get them stabilized and in a position where they could start to get their lives back together. And in Vancouver, what they're actually doing now is realizing that heroin's like just really difficult to, to use as a treatment. They're switching to Dilaudid, which is hydromorphone, oh, and they're actually setting up a pilot program where it's almost like an ATM machine where you can go and access your hydromorphone, you have a certain number of doses available, you, you, it's biometric, so only you can access it, and you can do it on, you know, on your own time, on your own schedule, um, and it's being done, this is another way of putting some control in the, in the hands of the drug user, um, but also doing it in a limited way, and, and to, again, to get them stabilized. Um, and, and the fact is, the, the data from Vancouver and Geneva is really good. It shows that they've reduced transmission of HIV and hepatitis. They have fewer overdoses. In Vancouver, they've had a decrease in crime. So what used to be happening is people would break in the cars so they would shoot up in a car or use a car, you know, that they had broken into as a place to turn tricks. And that's no longer, you know, that's that dramatically dropped with the start of, of these programs. So I mean, I guess it depends on what your goals are. But to me, that all sounds like pretty good outcome. Yeah, it's awesome. It, it, I just it, don't know that that guy is so loving. That doctor, I always forget. Yeah. So, and the, everybody that works with him is so, it's so open-minded and loving and kind and thoughtful mm -hmm. and. And I just don't believe that that exists in Huntington, West Virginia. I well, there's a lot of there's a lot of moralizing about drug use, yes, which is I, so bizarre. So you can have the safe injection sites, but is there going to be the love that I think makes those programs in Canada so well? Effective? Let's let's I think we in this country call it community. And so, and Shelley talks about that all the time. Well, I visited the safe injection site when it first opened in Vancouver yeah. years and years and years ago. And Not to use it. No, no, <laughs> no. I was actually, you know, pretty newly sober yeah. actually at the time when I went to visit. Um, and because my my uh, my daughter's family's, you know, up mm. there. Her her dad lives lived in Vancouver for many years, and his family's up there. And so we visited, and the problem was is that they were openly using on the sidewalks. There was yeah. needles on the sidewalks. They were utilizing vehicles for, you know, that that element. And Vancouver, you know, decided to do something about that. Whereas, you know, we were sort of behind the curve on on doing stuff about that. And now we have such a level of of homeless, yeah. you know, with with all of the contagion. And, yeah. the, and the diseases. So, so I want to go back one more time on to Dr. Gander about this. So well, this is a different topic now, but before we close that, I want to address it because here in Los Angeles, we have <laughs> homeless encampments everywhere, and on each side of each encampment are gigantic mounds of feces and trash and breaking down food that people hand the homeless people, mm -hmm. covered with rats. The rodent control people in Los Angeles and San Francisco now cannot keep enough rat traps in supply okay. to manage what's happened in the community now. So we have... We have gigantic mounds of feces with volatilized norovirus coming out. You've had norovirus twice. My son's had it once. And we now have rickettsial disease breaking out through the rodent-borne fleas. What is that? 
rock, like Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. It's murine typhus locally here. Uh, I, do, I just want to know, if Dr. Gounder, if you share our concerns about where this is going this summer and where it might end up. Because it's a breakdown not just of – it's a breakdown of civilization here. It's not, forget yes. city government. Civilization, the foundation of it is unraveling in this town. And I'm wondering if Dr. Gounder has any concerns. Yeah, I 100% agree. I mean, we're seeing homelessness increasing across the country, but especially in cities along the West Coast. And a lot of this, if you think about it, is being driven by gentrification. It's the tech cities in general. Um, you know, Seattle is actually one of the worst affected. Uh, but all up and down the coast, San Diego has had a huge outbreak of hepatitis A among the homeless that they finally now are just getting under control. And you, you had communities saying, well, these people are homeless. We don't want to enable them, you know, to use the language of addiction. We don't want to enable them by providing them with restrooms that they can use and, and that sort of thing, you know, hygienic facilities. And so as a result, you have the problems that you're now talking about where you have you know, people who are literally let, using let me, local let me, I got I've got to interrupt you. I've got to interrupt you. It's, it's more complicated than that because uh, I've been working in this area now. And to these are chronically mentally ill homeless people that we predominantly have on the streets now. We set up showers, 12 showers. To get one homeless person into a shower took on average 15 separate contacts just mm-hmm. to get them to get into them. a shower. To get them into and to stay in a homeless shelter is nearly impossible given the laws of the land presently. They have to be motivated and looking for it, which is like. Have you asked them why? Ask them what? What you'll find is if you ask them why, here are some of the reasons they'll tell you. They'll tell you, I can't go into a homeless shelter with my partner because it'll be a single-sex homeless shelter. Homeless shelter. Or else they'll say, I can't take my pet with me into a homeless shelter. Or I'm afraid of having my belongings stolen from me if I'm in a homeless shelter. Right. I mean, and that's all, and you, that's you need all, to look at the reasons That's why. all paranoid BS. I'm sorry, because we handle each one of those problems. And as we solve each one, they find another one. And so this is chronic mental illness. We have lots of facilities where to house them. Getting no, we them don't. E- no, we, we do don't. now. We do now. And now – the, the, the it, some of them it's towards the desert, but we've got we, the point is they can't keep them in. They come in and they just go back out, and they they have no ability to keep them in the shelters. This is the problem. Orange County cleaned out the Santa Ana Riverbed. They gave them all housing. Only about you know where only they about thirty percent. I know they're motels and things like that, but they're no. in ni- nice well, that's housing. That's how, how Chris and, got the norovirus was at Knott's Berry Farm. They're all sleeping in the parking lots of Knott's Berry that's Farm. Not, that's that's the ones that refused to stay in the shelters that were being provided to them. And they had and not only did they have shelters, they had social workers and mm-hmm. people going in, but these people had no ability to keep... I've been working with this for the so last you six want months. So you want a law enacted that you can conserve people based on their transient... Gra- gravely transient, disabled yeah. and, more, and more conservatorship. Would, would, then they'd be... Then you could get them better. Then they'd want to... You know, they magically would want to stay as you deal with the psychotic illness and the drug addiction and all the stuff that's Yeah, there. I mean, I... You know, I deal with people who have insurance but that's all yeah and i have people who want to be with their partner i have people who want to take their pets i have all of these things that the doctor is speaking about i deal with on a daily basis i just had somebody yesterday who said they want to be with somebody in in the they want a sober living where they can be with their partner but they met that partner in addiction two months ago and so i'm struggling with the idea of 
Yes, but is that appropriate no, for them? No, from a therapeutic standpoint, that should not happen. And so that's Period. the difficulty yeah. with having someone want to be with their partners when their dynamic is not healthy and both clients are mentally unstable. Right. And so then I'm trying to and find them anything. to stay together, yeah. but the one is clearly gravely disabled and needs a conservatorship, is 21 years old, and... I don't have a lot of recourse to help that person, and yep. I want to help that person. Yep. And if you put them in a place together, that will fail. I, I don't think that's going to work in my experience. Dude. So I'm standing <laughs> up against this, but I'm just saying every day these are the questions I'm being asked. To, so, get, to get out of the rut, I was thinking about last night because uh, I spoke at this AA meeting. So AA has a terminology where you have to – it's for people who want it, not for people who need it. Right. Right? And right. I started thinking about that. I needed it but didn't want it. Then I wanted it and needed it. That's the perfect thing, right? Mm -hmm. Then I didn't need it anymore. I wanted it. Mm -hmm. And now it's this constant back and forth of um, it's not a lot of need for being involved in it. I want to be involved, to be around new people, to help spread this message of hope, right? Yeah. I think that's the same approach you're going to have you're seeing with the homeless. They they need it but they don't want it. Mm -hmm. Right? You're trying to hit that perfect duality. You're, you're of right. They want it and they need it. You're right. There are people that are specialized in creating that motivation. Some of them are mm -hmm. former homeless, some of them are social workers with high degree of skill, but it takes a lot of time and a mm -hmm. lot of effort and a lot of manpower and they have very few tricks up their sleeve to be able to really hang on to these patients. It is extremely difficult. It's getting better. There are teams now being mobilized, but it's clear what's needed is massive mental health services. Massive, I feel like massive. the Red Cross also coming in in a way to try to stabilize and to clear away the things that are producing the levels of contagious um, illnesses. Because I think the Red Cross and, you know, have a good idea of how to do that. We've been doing it in other nations for quite some time mm -hmm. i think we can utilize those skills to come in and help the homeless in 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 los angeles well the, the point is it takes it takes a little army you're, yes, you're right that's what I, I feel like it does and the, that's what's happening why not the national guard i know i sound like uh, a you're a no, white guy no, no I, I'm, <laughs> I'm saying so so I think when they get out of Los Angeles, which yeah. is a great point, the Upper Desert, Victorville, yeah. uh, Antelope Valley, yeah. get out there. That's where they're trying just to even the for housing. a month. I know, and have it be, you know, get your life together. See, as, see no, there's a, a there's a giant movement that direction too. That that's happening because by the way, part of the reason is the the county representatives that are being very proactive represent those areas and so they're they're setting up really cool programs we got to wrap it up uh, i want to give dr gounder a chance to tell us more about the ill health tour and also what they can find at celinegounder.com so i work part-time at bellevue hospital but i'm also spending a lot of time on indian reservations across the country i'm actually headed to new mexico next month to work on a navajo reservation up in the northwest corner of the state and you know we're talking about sanitation, homelessness, and so on. I mean, this is a part of the state where they still don't have running water. There's a water lady who will deliver your water cooler full of water for the week um, in some of these communities. And so, you know, you can imagine uh, some of the challenges that they're dealing with there. Um, 
so it's a, it's a really uh, awesome community to work with. There's some really interesting problems, people who really need help. Um, and uh, um, that's what I'll be doing for the next month. Awesome. Fantastic. And thank you for joining us. It's Celine Gounder, C-E-L-I-N-E Gounder, G-O-U-N-D-E-R, CelineGounder.com. In Sickness and in Health podcast at the usual sites, we'll put a link up too. Thank you, Dr. Gounder, and we will uh, see you all next time. Bye-bye. Thank you. All right, that's about it for this episode of This Life. Check us out at KBC, being uh, Lawrence Vaughn, 790 Midday Live, Talk Radio, Monday to Friday. You can also tune in every day live via the magic of the internet at kbc.com. If you miss it, we've made it simple for you to find all the shows at drdrew.com, the Adam and Dr. Drew podcast, the Sing What I Do By Myself, Dr. Drew podcast, This Life, of course, with Bob Swole Patrol, Mike Cantho, and his new health and fitness podcast. You can uh, find us on Twitter at This Life Podcast, at Dr. Drew, Dairy W, at Rehab Bob Forrest, and of course, our lovely producer at First Lady of Love. I think I know who that is. If you love this show, please subscribe and tell a friend. We appreciate it when you do. We'd love to hear your feedback as well. Send us a message. Join the email list at drdrew.com, drdrew.com slash contact. You'll also get a weekly uh, email from us on that. Uh, while you're at it, at doctor.com, please support our sponsors by clicking through the banners. We only advertise products that I can get behind. So thank you for supporting them, those that support us. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.